Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. I too would also lend my voice to acknowledging this wonderful, wonderful country that we're on and to the Gadigal people present here today and to all people who are present here today and recognise this land has never been ceded and never been sold. My name is Lisa Jackson-Pulver. I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Indigenous Strategy and Services, and I'm a Professor of Public Health, amongst other things. I am your host for this evening's wonderful event. It's the second of our Voices on Voice event, where we continue the discussion about the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. We're really excited about having Professor Langton with us tonight. She's a remarkable individual whose contribution to academia and Indigenous rights advocacy has left an absolute indelible mark upon all of us, uh, certainly on our society and certainly on the academy as a whole. We are privileged to have her with us today and her presence is a testament to the power of knowledge and dedicated dedication in making a positive impact on society. Thanks so much. I see he's gone, but many thanks to Uncle Chicka uh, Madden uh, for his very elegant and warm welcome to country here on Gadigal land. So I acknowledge and pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, all their elders, the traditional owners, and their young people, uh, the ones who are coming through and cutting their teeth now in Indigenous affairs, striving to find a place of dignity for themselves and others in this vexed landscape of Australia, where we, the First Peoples, remain without constitutional recognition and where most Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are disadvantaged or extremely disadvantaged. So thank you so much, Chancellor, Vice-Chancellor, uh, Professor, Group Captain, Lisa Jackson-Pulver, uh, JB, uh, Alex and many others uh, for getting me here. And uh, <clears throat> I'm very grateful for this opportunity to tell you my point of view about the referendum question that you will be voting on later this year. So, you've been told over and over again that this constitutional alteration question is very simple and clear. And for many people it isn't, and I understand that. And the what seems simple uh, might might be if you have a law degree in expertise in constitutional law. Um, but if you're an ordinary person, it's, uh, it doesn't seem clear at all. So what it represents is profound. And I think this is where people get rattled. So yes, a change to the constitution is a very big step for Australians. And they, they want to know, doesn't matter if you're Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander or non-Indigenous, people want to know, well, what does this mean for the future? What will the future look like if we vote for this change? And that, I say, is a perfectly legitimate question. So, yes, it's more than symbolic recognition in voting yes on this question because along with the proposition that the Constitution would be changed, if you voted yes, to recognise the First Peoples um, by establishing a voice to Parliament and the Executive Government to enable Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to make representations on matters that affect them. That is the practical element, which added to the symbolic element of constitutional recognition makes for a very powerful whole 
that I think will not only give dignity to Indigenous Australians, but dignity to all Australians. It will mean in the end, if we get there, that we can put behind us that ugly colonial history uh, that really, I think, will always be the, divide, the divisive matter that keeps us apart. Now, you will remember the <coughs> apology by Kevin Rudd, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd in 2008 to the Stolen Generations. That apology was recommended by the final Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation in two, the year 2000, when it made its the council made its final report to government as required under the Act. Their 10 years was up and the chairman, Patrick Dodson, handed the final report to then Prime Minister John Howard. And in it were many recommendations and one of them was find a pathway to constitutional reform and another one was to apologise to the stolen generations. There were others to do with how money is allocated to Indigenous affairs, resulting in unfairness and wastage. John Howard rejected all of those recommendations, every one of them. And eight years later, well, in fact, nine, almost nine, John Howard's rejection of the very idea that these people had been removed from their families forcibly as children uh, was, I think, you know, subjected to some honest scrutiny and Prime Minister Kevin Rudd apologised in Parliament. His government consulted widely. Most of the remaining victims of the policy turned up at Parliament House, their families turned up and there were hundreds of people there. And he, he meant it. I think we all know that he meant it. And what was the impact of that apology? Well, if you listened to it and if you watched what happened on that day, you'll know that it healed the nation was it cause it acknowledged a past wrong and it vindicated the members of the stolen generation who wanted the world to believe that what had happened to them was unjust, it was wrong. The apology set that right. In 1901, when Australians woke up on January 1, they were no longer colonists, they were no longer British, they were suddenly Australians. That was the day that our constitution became, uh, came into effect. It was an act and is an act of the Westminster Parliament and it was written entirely by white male colonists. Now, they did a number of things to completely exclude the First Peoples from the Constitution. And you'll hear a lot of lies about this, and you probably have heard them already. Um, so, it used the word race a number of times. It excluded the natives from being counted in reckoning the citizens of the Commonwealth. It, it, it prevented the Commonwealth Parliament from making laws for Aborigines. So the Commonwealth could make laws for the peace and good order of, you know, of the Commonwealth except for Aborigines. It contained uh, a section 
it still contains this section, section 25, which is a hangover from the White Australia days, and it uh, enabled the Commonwealth to, to give constitutional support to the states, the new states, the former colonies, when they were denying the right to vote or the franchise to certain kinds of people. I don't have to tell you who they were, do I? Um, uh, much later, an Indian man challenged that, uh, challenged his lack of the right to vote and won. Uh, and slowly but surely, the white Australia policy was torn down. In fact, one of the great contributors to ending that disgusting policy was your first Aboriginal graduate, the late Charles Perkins. Um, some people in this room will remember that he not only organised the, with his fellow students, the Freedom Rides, uh, and they started from a bus right here in front of the Great Hall, but he also ran onto the tarmac when the immigration officials had grabbed a little Fijian girl and were deporting her alone back to Fiji. He ran onto the tarmac and grabbed her and took her into his care to stop her from being deported. And it was all over the newspapers and drew attention to how vicious that policy was. But I think we've seen similar uh, circumstances just recently too, haven't we? Um, so, in 1967, there was a referendum and a question was put to the Australian people, uh, do you agree with the proposition? And I'm just making a long story short here to remove the words, except for Aborigines, from Section 5126, which prevented the Commonwealth from legislating on any matter that affected us. And also the, I think it was section 127 that excluded the natives from being uh, counted in any reckoning of the citizens of the Commonwealth. Uh, you might've heard Professor Blaney uh, giving his spin on this. Um, I don't agree with him. Um, <clears throat> the reason for all of that exclusion was about the money. It's always about the money. It wasn't just about this, you know, racial hygiene and keeping the keeping the natives out. It was also about the money. So this was explained in a footnote in a constitutional uh, text by Lanaus. And I found it in a footnote and I thought, oh, that answers all sorts of questions. So if the colonists were mainly in Victoria and New South Wales, because they you know, hadn't made it into the north at that time in the late 19th century uh, in great numbers, and this is, you know, it was in these two colonies where all the money was, and because they designed a federation with a Commonwealth taxation uh, a, a rule that the money was to be collected by the Commonwealth and then redistributed to the new states, they couldn't have the money going to those new states with very large Aboriginal populations because they, you know, of their calculations. So in order for the money to only go to white people, they excluded Aboriginal people by all these different means in the census, in the lawmaking, uh, and so on. And the architecture set up by the Constitution lasted well past 1967. Now, it's true that over 90% of Australians voted to get rid of the racist phrase in Section 5126 and in 127. It's, that's true. They, 
Australians then thought they were voting for equality. That's what they were led to believe. But, you know, as just as today, they hadn't read the Constitution. It's only 78 pages. I urge you to read it. Even though there was that happened, we remain this kind of ghostly figure in the Constitution. We're not really there because we were excluded by deleting the racist phrase doesn't include us. That doesn't really include us. We're still actually effectively excluded because then the High Court interpreted the new wording of 5126 to mean that the Commonwealth could make laws uh, to our detriment. And that was in the Cartinary case. So it's a matter of black letter law that the Commonwealth can cause us harm, according to the High Court. Now, one would think that a generous, compassionate government would say, well, that's just black letter law. Let's pass an act. Let's pass some legislation to make sure that our legislation that affects Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples meets certain basic standards. Might be human rights standards, might be civil rights standards. Um, and that never happened. In fact, to the contrary, if you look at what has happened to us in the last 10 years, it's really difficult to point to anything uh, that's made our lives better. Um, I won't go on about all of the legislation that I find offensive, but of course the fact of the matter is that the Commonwealth is exempt from the Racial Discrimination Act. State and territory governments aren't, but the Commonwealth is. So the Commonwealth can treat us in a racist manner. The Commonwealth can cause us detriment at law. So it's worse than just an absence. We're actually vulnerable. We are at risk legally, constitutionally, and as a matter of practice. So everybody reads the Closing the Gap report, the Productivity Interim Report on Closing the Gap, and we all know that governments are not meeting, to, and probably will never meet, two of the 19 targets. Well, in the Northern Territory, it's eight that are not being met and will probably never be met. Eight out of 19. And that was pointed out yesterday by Leslie Turner in The Guardian. So it was back in, I think, let me find the year. I've worked, I've worked uh, for many years as a volunteer, a rouseabout, uh, all sorts of things in Arnhem Land. I was a field officer for the Fred Hollows um, first tour of Arnhem Land to check people's eyes back in 1977. And uh, over the years I've met many great leaders and it was my great honour to be a friend of uh, Dr Yunapingu, the leader of the Gumach clan who passed away recently. So in 2007, he raised with me his desire to see Aboriginal people recognised in the constitution. Uh, I, I have known about the history of the constitution because, you know, I was, I think, about 16 uh, during the 67 referendum and watched my elders campaign for the yes vote then in Queensland. So Dr Yunapingo was concerned to ensure that his Yolngu people had a rightful place in the nation. He asked me to find Noel Pearson. He'd never met him. 
And so a second great graduate of this university, and he graduated from law here, I think in 1992, um, <clears throat> was then spelling out the framework of his welfare reform strategy, which is now implemented as um, the empowered community strategy by the Cape York Partnerships in Cape York. And Dr. Yunapingu read widely, listened to the radio, demanded briefings, and he was very interested in these policy developments in what was essentially a policy-free zone, as it remains now. And he insisted that I find him. So I did, and I, I told Noel over the phone that uh, Dr. Yunapingu wanted to see him as soon as he could possibly get there. Well, Noel had heard about and read about and understood who Dr. Yunapingu was, and they hadn't met each other face to face. So Noel turned up on a charter plane with his entourage soon afterwards, and they <clears throat> stood on the cliffs at Gulkala, uh, where the Gama Festival is now held. Well, it was then and still held. Noel was very much aware of Dr. Yunapingu's history in the land rights history from the 1960s, in fact, when he was a, uh, well, in the 1970s, he was an interpreter for Sir Edward Woodward, the late Sir Edward Woodward, who, was the, who became the first land rights commissioner appointed by Gough Whitlam when, you know, Gough overcame black letter law. Somebody said to him, no, you can't recognise Aboriginal land rights. Don't be ridiculous, he said. Well, of course, Whitlam was a constitutional lawyer, wasn't he? he and he had a look at the constitution. And he said, well, there's nothing to stop me, is there? So he set up the commission. And, of course, it, the Commonwealth could only implement land rights in the Northern Territory, but obviously he'd hoped to, you know, engage the states and other territories in recognising land rights as well. So, um, you know, as a young man and an interpreter for all the clans giving evidence, you know, he came up through the ranks and was trained by his father, Mungarawoi, to be the clan leader, which he became. Um, and that was the, you know, Milipum v. Nabalco case uh, in the 60s uh, that they were involved in. And that was the case that, that, you know, put into Australian common law this concept of terra nullius. There are people who say, people who write for the Australian who say, there's no such thing as terra nullius. Well, it is actually in the, you know, the case findings. It's not called terra nullius, that's just a Latin shorthand for the concept of, you know, conquered and ceded colonies. And um, it's all there, spelled out very clearly. And that is what prevented the Yolngu from having their ancient rights in land or native title recognised at that time. So Noel was aware of all this history and he was very keen once Gulleroy had, sorry, Dr Yunapingo had explained uh, why he wanted constitutional recognition. And Noel got a huge branch and said, hold it. And they stood there and Noel pulled it. He said, pull it. So they pulled it backwards and forwards. And uh, Noel said, I'll pull from the right and you pull from the left. Let's achieve this together. Um, so that idea of dialogue uh, took shape there at Gulkala. And, of course, what both men wanted was to overcome this, you know, what Lyndon B. Johnson called the um, racism of low expectations the racial exceptionalism, especially in relation to economic participation, 
alcohol, drugs, violence, failure to attend school, and so on. And in order for the agency of Aboriginal people to become real, they both realised that the government must listen and give a formal voice to the people. And it was a very democratic idea that developed over time and not well understood, you know, who wants to have these debates over a glass of wine? No, uh, it's not actually the stuff of ordinary conversation, is it? But it is for people who are facing existential threats like the loss of their languages, the loss of clans, the loss of clan names, the loss of the kinship system and so much more how to perform ceremonies, how to sing songs, how to play the Yadaki, place names, the rules for in approaching places and being in places. They understood perfectly well that they face a real existential crisis. And still today we face that crisis and now it's measured in the Close the Gap reports. We were invited uh, to serve on the expert panel on constitutional recognition. We did so. We handed in a report to Prime Minister Julia Gillard of about 500 pages um, with a proposition to change the constitution to, by removing section 5126, that provision that enables the Commonwealth to cause us detriment with a new provision that required the Commonwealth to pass laws for us for our advancement. And the constitutional conservatives went nuts, absolutely nuts. Um, told us to go away, come back with a better idea. And Noel then wrote Our Rightful Place, in which he envisaged a hook in the Constitution, which gives us recognition as peoples, and then from that hook, as with most things in the Constitution, the Parliament could then legislate for a, a democratic voice for Indigenous Australians. So then there were two streams of activity. One, the Referendum Council, which involved Professor Megan Davis and Pat Anderson and the Uluru Dialogues and in 2017, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And the other stream recommended, uh, also recommended by the Joint Select Committee chaired by Julian Lisa and, and Senator Patrick Dodson was the voice co-design process chaired by Professor Tom Calmer and myself. So we presented our final report to the Morrison government. Our minister at that time, Ken Wyatt, presented it. Peter Dutton was on that cabinet, received a copy, should have read it. That's what he's paid to do, read the cabinet papers. Um, uh, but he purports not to know any of the detail. Wants to know where the detail is. Where's the detail? Uh, so you have the Referendum Council report and the Voice Co-Design report. You have the Uluru Statement from the Heart and some nice diagrams in our report that makes a big report, a simple exercise in enabling Indigenous people across the country to have representative bodies, vo regional voices, local voices and a national voice and now we see the question has come together. Constitutional recognition through the establishment of a voice announced just over a year ago at the Garma Festival with Dr Yunapingu by his side, our Prime Minister Albanese made a commitment to fully implement the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I urge you to read the Kalma Langton Voice Co-Design Report because what will the future look like if we win this election, and I hope even if we don't, the government should legislate something like what we recommended. There are a few problems. 
I know that. But I commend it to you. I, I think in our two-and-a-half-year consultations and deep thinking, I believe that we came up with a, a way to empower Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, to close the gap, to have agency in their lives and have dignity, um, but most of all, to close the gap on disadvantage. If we have constitutional recognition, we will have dignity. So, of course, I'm urging you to vote yes. I'm going to vote yes. I know you will have many questions. I hope I can answer at least some of them well. Uh, but I assure you, the details there, it's difficult to read. Uh, but there are many of us who are willing to explain it to you. So I thank you very much for having me here tonight to speak to you about the referendum question and what we face in the future. I hope we face a unified Australia, empowered Indigenous people with a practical way to become engaged in giving advice on how to close the gap. And we have a nation that's recognised around the world as having decent standards for all of its citizens and ending the colonial exclusion of Indigenous people from the fabric of the nation. Thank you. Absolutely tremendous. Thank you so much. And lots and lots there for us to think about. And I have a feeling that you could have spoken for hours, for days, for weeks, for months, for years about your experience. It's interesting because when you pulled up uh, in the vehicle from the airport, um, as soon as um, Professor got out of the vehicle, the driver jumped around and helped get her baggage out and uh, was very keen to come and attend this evening. So if you're here, it's lovely to know that you're here. But it's one of those sorts of occasional conversations that people can and should be having with others. I'm just wondering, what is a good way of getting people to understand what this is about without referring them to the really big documents and tones, to take advantage of those conversations that are just ones that you bump into on a good day? Okay, so there's so many things I want to say in answer to that question. I'll start off by saying that there are, by my reckoning, five campaign groups now, uh, possibly more. Uh, so there's the Yes23 campaign, um, yes23.com.au. That brings together uh, people uh, such as Dean Parkin, um, Rachel Perkins and other people who serve on Australians for Indigenous Constitutional Recognition. And then there's um, the... Uluru, Dial Uluru uh, campaign group. Um, then there's uh, Sean Gordon's Hub, tw Hub 23. Uh, I've joined all three. Um, I'm very eclectic. Um, and there, there, there is even yet another one, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, but I think, you know, there's a slight sense of panic uh, in our ranks because uh, the media keeps saying that we're not getting our message across. And, you know, you, you see articles from uh, journalists and op-ed writers saying, where is their leader? They must have a leader. Where's their leader? Um, well, see, we're, we're not getting our message through, are we? How many times do we have to tell them we're not a race? That, you know, when the British got here, there were hundreds of languages. And if you look at the gumbay.com.au website, people all over the country are putting up their own language groups, registering them, putting evidence of their language groups, people speaking in their language, their grammars, their dictionaries, their school texts and so on. And I think now Gumbay's got 600 languages up there. So we've gone from the old, you know, school of linguistics count of 
perhaps 250, maybe 350, um, to, you know, the linguists now no longer talking about languages and dialects. They now refer to language varieties because, yeah, there are 600 language varieties nominated by the speakers themselves or the descendants of the speakers on that website. So we're not a race. And each one of those language groups probably represents an ancient polity, an ancient jurisdiction that had its own form of governance. Many of them still exist. In northeast Arnhem Land, where Dr Yunapingu was the head of the Gumach clan, the clans have a council that's called the Dilak, and the, each clan puts up not the oldest person, you know, burden the old with, you know, the grubby affairs of governing. They put up a nominee who's senior enough, authoritative enough and, you know, vigorous enough to be involved in governing. Um, and that council met, I've, I've been to some of them over the years, and now they're formalising the Dilak as their governance council. It's customary, it's been around for who knows how many uh, thousands of years. And there are such councils across the country. Back in the old days when we had the National Aboriginal Council, people would talk about their tribal councils, they still do. Um, there are these customary governing bodies. So we have many leaders. All the journalists want to have one target to tear down and play gotcha moments on. That's not how we do things. Most of the media coverage is gotcha moments. Right, all the kerfuffle about the treaty this week. What does the Uluru Statement from the Heart say? Voice, treaty, truth. It was read to the nation on TV in 2017 by Megan Davis. Suddenly the media know nothing about it. Oh, huge surprise, right? It's all, you know, it was talked about in the Referendum Council report. There's a need, the reason for it, it's called makarata, a word gifted by Dr Yunapingu to the whole Uluru dialogue process, as makarata. And, you know, that's the ritual settling of disputes by means of highly ritualised warfare right, or duelling. And once a makarata has been held, the matter's put to rest. It's over. Finished. Um, you're allowed to raise it again. It's settled. So this is what people meant uh, in the old days. And with the gifting of the word to the representatives at the Uluru Convention in 2017, the idea was... Well, um, we need a Makarata Commission. There are these treaties happening around the country. We need to make sure that they don't fall below an acceptable standard. What if, you know, people naively negotiate a treaty with a hostile government and give away their rights, give away their existing rights? What if they negotiate a treaty that falls below international treaty standards? Um, so, you know, the idea of a Makarata Commission is, you know, not exactly the Waitangi Tribunal and not a Human Rights Commission, but, you know, we already have the treaty process in Victoria. It's legislated. It's well on its way. They have elect the elected First Peoples Assembly. Then you have the treaty process in Queensland, and before that, the treaty process in the Northern Territory was started. And on top of that, you have the, the Noongar Settlement, which is legislated in the WA Parliament, so, and the Crown is a party. So guess what? The Noongar Settlement is a modern treaty, according to Professor George Williams and one of his colleagues. His first name's Harry. Sorry, I've forgotten his last name. Um, so that's a modern treaty, according to these legal scholars. Well, I would add to that that the Western Cape York Agreement negotiated in 2004 by the Wick peoples is also a treaty because the Queensland government's a party and it's a comprehensive settlement of the issues. That's also a treaty. So surprise, surprise, journalists, there are treaties in Australia. Um, and the idea was that we'd set up the voice, uh, 
and that, you know, eventually we'd set up the Makarata Commission and make sure that, you know, treaties are negotiated according to proper standards. It doesn't mean that there's going to be a treaty and we're going to take your backyards and your hills hoists. Um, anything else we can lay our hands on. Um, the treaty process started many, many years ago, and it's now very well developed, but journalists pay no attention to our issues. They haven't, they can barely get this right. You know, there are very few of them who do. Um, and it's, this is why the public are so confused. It's been misreported by the media. The media use it for their usual game of, oh, look what the Aborigines are doing now. Isn't it shocking? Um, and I'm sorry, but the, the main point they consistently miss is that the Uluru Statement from the Heart and all of our work is an invitation to the nation to walk with us. It's an invitation from us, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's not from the government. So why are the journalists asking the Prime Minister and Linda Burney? Why don't they ask us? And seriously, having debates in Parliament about what the Makarata Commission might look like, what the treaty process might look like, is jumping the shark. Can you first of all please understand the referendum question and get that right? No, they can't get that right. They can't even get that right. There's a referendum question. So uh, I really do want people to understand that this is a genuine invitation from 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who were elected to go to the first and only Indigenous National Constitutional Convention at Uluru because during the dialogues, this, these are the ideas that they developed and they were refined at the Uluru Convention into the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So events like this are fabulous because we get to tell our side of the story and tell those pesky journalists off. It's interesting because this has been a very, very long journey and uh, for many quite exhausting. And I know that you, like so many others, are just plum tuckered out from all of this. And some of the questions that we're getting from you on Slido, so please just keep popping them in, um, are, you know, basically asking what happens if it doesn't get up? What happens the next day? How do we involve the generations of people who are, at the moment, still considering their options? Um, you know, the demographic 50 to 65 are the ones that seem to be a little bit troublesome. And without asking you to put your hands up, there might be one or two of us in that kit. What do we say to them? How do we get them engaged? How do we get them to understand that... This has been so long coming that if we don't end up with a result that sees us recognised, the harm that that could do. For the last 10 years, Conservative governments have had the opportunity to legislate an uh, advisory body, could have even been representative. Um, in order to listen to what the authentic representatives of all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples uh, want governments to talk to them about, sit down at the table and discuss with them in order to get policy setting rights. They didn't. In fact, uh, the Howard government abolished ATSIC the Abbott government set up the Aboriginal Advisory Body or the Indigenous Advisory Body, of, I forget the exact name, chaired by Warren Mundine. Um, and uh, that didn't achieve anything. Uh, no transparency whatsoever. No policy announcements. And then by the end of Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership, that it's... it's quietly disappeared and never mentioned again. Um, and of course, before ATSIC, there, there was the National Aboriginal uh, 
conference. Government got rid of that. There was the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee. The government got rid of that. Uh, and if you go through our history, you find that every election or so, governments just think, okay, we have to come in with a new message. We're a new government. We're going to do something new. What will we do? Uh, we'll kill off the Aboriginal Consultative Committee. We'll change the Aboriginal policy. Guess what, voters? We're changing the Aboriginal policy. You'll feel so much better. You'll be richer. You'll be whiter. And year after year after year, all of our hard work goes down the drain. All of the advances we make under a policy go down the drain. I don't know how many times the CDP policy's been changed. That started back in the 70s as a simple work for the Dole scheme. And because the elders did not want everybody on sit-down money not working, right? And in fact, I gave a Charles Perkins oration here on exactly this, I think way at the beginning of these orations, I think I was the second orator. It was years ago under, I think, the Abbott government. Um, and it has been changed over and over and over again. And now all of the people running the community development program, as it's now called, have, are pleading for stability. And they want to go back to the old policy so that they can get people working and get, you know, enterprises operating in their communities. Meanwhile, on the no case, what, what's their big policy idea? What's their big solution for all of this? Jobs, jobs, jobs. Jobs, jobs, jobs. They haven't been able to get the CDP policy right. They can't even do basic, a basic work for the Dole scheme, let alone jobs, jobs, jobs. And guess who is a major shareholder in a, an employment agency? Warren Mundine. So, you know, I mean, have a look at the policies that the no case are raising. Well, we'd have constitutional recognition if you get rid of the voice. They had years and years and years to give us constitutional recognition. They didn't. Um, that, well, we'd legislate the voice. Well, you know, we handed them two reports when we were doing the voice co-design project. We handed them the interim report and then the final report and Dutton was in that cabinet and they didn't legislate it. It was handed to them on a platter. Legislate this. No, they didn't do it. Uh, why aren't we closing the gap on all 19 targets? Why are we so far from doing it that I, my prediction is that over a third of our population will never close the gap? Well, that's because it's a policy-free zone. It's, you know, where the imaginary enemy of the state and every politician comes along and plays a political football with us because how do we frighten you into voting for them? Well, it's Aborigines, and if it's not Aborigines, it's asylum seekers. Oh, and then there's the LGBTIQ community. So, you know, it's... They play the old-fashioned fear tactics, but now they've got all the extra post-Trumpian tactics, the Steve Bannon tactics, the swamping the social media with bots and AI-generated Facebook lies, lies on Twitter. I've never been a member of the Communist Party. I did have a very cute Communist Party member boyfriend once here in Sydney. Um, <laughs> Uh, never been a member of the Communist Party, but, it, you know, if you only read the no-case bots about that evil Marcia Langton, you'd be horrified. You'd run out of the room. Anyway, so every Indigenous leader has been targeted. You've been targeted. Um, Megan Davis has been targeted by uh, these nefarious Trump-like uh, cult groups, you know, and, and if you read their garbage on Dark Emu Exposed, uh, on the Advance Australia and various other sites, you try to think about what kind of people write this garbage. Um, 
I, I think of them as, you know, sort of old stock traders that are losing money sitting around in their underpants in their mother's basements. <laughs> So, and they just, you know, I hate that person. I'm going to. They're just full of rage and spite. The things that they've said about all of us, I mean, they're so ridiculous and absurd. You know, it's gone past comedy. It's gone past comedy. It's gone past tragedy. There's got to be a new label for the post-Trumpian world of hate. Um, so we face an uphill battle, a really tough uphill battle to convey our simple message and we need your help. We need everybody phoning friends, handing out uh, Yes 23 materials at railway stations, bus stops, classrooms. So if I have persuaded you and you have time to make a phone call or have a uh, Yes Together lunch with your friends or join a local group and hand out material in your local neighbourhoods, please do so because I want everybody to wake up after the referendum and feel proud to be Australian and to know that we've taken that extra step to draw the line in the sand with our colonial past embedded in our constitution and empower Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first peoples to have a say in our own futures by making representations through the voice on laws and policies that affect us. We don't want to give you parking fines. We don't want to make you pay money to live here. We don't, we don't care about the submarines. We really don't care. You know, what we're really concerned about is health, housing, education, and lowering the incarceration rates for both adults and children. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. <laughs>